0: Well, welcome to the Podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is the 2021 Summer Interlude Between Seasons. This summer, we're sharing brand new lectures by Joe Boot from a series produced in partnership with Answers in Genesis called Creation, Cross, and Culture. Catch a new episode each week, and we'll be back in September with a new season of the Podcast for Cultural Reformation. Justice, Race, and Revolution, Part One. When someone entrusted with the enforcement of public law for the protection of all members of society abuses their position and authority to violate that very rule of law, the injustice of the crime is greatly aggravated, especially when the results are lethal. In recent history, this was brought home in the killing of George Floyd by an officer in Minneapolis. In the weeks following the lawless death of George Floyd, however, it became obvious that many people in the West were not content to let criminal justice take its course, instead demanding a form of social vengeance upon certain groups within society and even the destruction of the cultural history of the Anglosphere. Legitimate Lawful and peaceful demonstrations were strategically captured by a political ideology exploiting Mr. Floyd's death and used as a pretext for rioting, violence and a full-scale assault on the remnants of Western Christian culture as expressed in the biblical family structure and the rule of law. As the revolutionary fervor against an alleged cultural imperialism has spread, few great politicians or notable cultural leaders from Western history appear safe. Not Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Oliver Cromwell, John Knox, Lord Nelson, Christopher Columbus, or even Winston Churchill. All these great figures, we are told, must be defaced beheaded or pulled down to make way for the new order of social justice. It does not matter what they stood for, what liberties they realized for future generations, or what great accomplishments they achieved of which we are the ignorant and ungrateful beneficiaries. All that matters is that these people belong to an allegedly guilty culture and privileged ethnicity. For this, Their portraits must be removed, their statues torn down, their legacy ridiculed, and the memory of them erased. Evidence of their alleged crimes or clear arguments about the specific nature of their wrongdoing are deemed irrelevant. How did an apparently straightforward case of criminal justice become a demand for revolution? including the defunding or abolition of policing, radical socialist economic and social policy, disruption of the nuclear family and liberation from every biological and sexual constraint. Somehow, a vital matter of juridical equity for one man became a call by a neo-Marxist liberation movement to overturn our society and its few remaining mores, symbols, and cultural norms. To better understand and answer this question, we need to deal with a phrase that's been getting a lot of airplay these past months – structural oppression. What we will see is that there is a fundamental religious conflict at work that influences the way our culture conceives of every aspect of reality, man, God, the world, and more. Now, the idea of structural oppression and the need to be liberated from it is not new. It is a religious motive with its own doctrine of redemption. It has taken specific aim at the evisceration of Christianized culture and it has recurred again and again, especially since the French Revolution. It was one of the primary architects of that revolution, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who tried to bring together humanistic conceptions of freedom, equality, collectivity, and radical democracy. But true freedom became the casualty of the experiment. Rousseau began with the fundamentally anti-scriptural idea of the original goodness of the human person at birth, supposedly enslaved and corrupted by society and culture. Man is born free, he quipped, and everywhere he is in chains. All the problems of life, according to Rousseau, are the result of external causes located in the structures and institutions of civil society producing bondage and inequality. What was required, he believed, was social revolution and a new social contract. But as Jan Dengerink has pointed out, and I quote, according to the terms of this fictional contract, men must hand over everything they have, that is to say, their original natural rights and freedom in their entirety to the new society. To this end, they are supposed of their own free will to place their entire person and everything pertaining thereto under the direction of the general will. In this fashion, there comes into being a moral and collective body. This emergent and fictional collective body is thus conceived as the realization of freedom in itself. Ironically, however, Rousseau's thought, embodied as it is in today's collectivist social democracy and manifest emphatically in the present calls of agitators to disrupt the nuclear family, defund police forces, redistribute wealth and overthrow white privilege in all its forms by creating a new society, moves inexorably in a totalitarian direction, in which all people must be forced to be free in the new order. Any person, any institution, any cultural artifact representing the old order must be removed, destroyed, censored, or shamed into line with this new freedom. It is easy to see how the concept of institutional racism is likewise the offspring of Rousseau's notion that it is the structures of society permitting excessive latitude for created or natural individual rights and freedoms which cause rather than merely convey disparities and inequalities within human society. The characteristic differences within human life, either by birth or as the result of our free decisions and their outcomes, the inequalities, can obviously become the basis of covetousness, jealousies and resentments. Cultural theologian and Ezra Institute fellow, Andrew Sandlin, has noted in a free society, some people are richer than others. Some are more accomplished because they are smarter. Some have a physical constitution to allow them to work harder and in many cases generate greater income. Some businesses are successful and some go bust. Some people gain social approval because of their appearance, elocution and personality. Others are disapproved for the same reasons. Some are wrongly disapproved, for example, for their skin color. Christians rightly disapprove of homosexuality. The variations in people, and therefore social responses to them, are nearly endless. It is these unequal outcomes that cultural Marxists deplore. Classical liberals value a free society, one of whose inevitable byproducts is these inequalities. They're willing to endure these inequalities, inevitable anyway, to protect against political coercion. The cultural Marxist, conversely, wish to employ political coercion in order to eliminate or mitigate these inequalities. Classical liberalism believes in equality too, but defines it as equality of condition or process. Everyone should be treated the same under the law. For classical Marxists, this is the Achilles' heel of the free society. If everyone is treated the same under the law, people's life outcomes will be different from other people's, sometimes radically different. This is unjust. It also means that cultural Marxists see social inequalities as a result of bad, venal intentions. Its perpetrators are the oppressors, If there is to be a truly just society they must be deprived of their ability to oppress this means using the state to crack down on their political liberty the challenge of facing and overcoming resentments regarding one's situation in life or in regard to the sins of others real or imagined is a normal part of the human condition in a fallen world however for any number of reasons, it does not take much for resentment to become a governing emotion in people's lives and quickly transformed into a social cause. The late English philosopher Roger Scruton points out that this happens, quote, when resentment loses the specificity of its target and becomes directed to society as a whole. He notes that this is the characteristic trait of radical left movements in the modern era. In such cases, resentment ceases to be a response to another's unmerited success and becomes instead an existential posture, the posture of the one whom the world has betrayed. Such a person does not seek to negotiate with existing structures but to gain total power, so as to abolish the structures themselves. He will set himself against all forms of mediation, compromise, and debate, and against the legal and moral norms that give voice to the dissenter and sovereignty to the ordinary person. He will set about destroying the enemy, whom he will conceive in collective terms as the class, group, or race, that hitherto controlled the world and which must now in turn be controlled. And all institutions that grant protection to that class or a voice in the political process will be targets for his destructive rage. Now this perceptive insight of Scruton helps account for the thousands of young people who were running around screaming in the streets, assaulting officers, destroying public property and chanting no justice, no peace. Their rage is an existential posture with no specific target. It is generalized against society as a whole. The demonstrations have moved well beyond awareness building around a specific incident and a need to deal swiftly with specific officers to protests with no specific goal in mind beyond the overthrow of existing structures. Consequently, for a generation nourished in our government schools and universities on the radical intellectual legacy of Rousseau and flavored with the neo-Marxist developments of the new left, the heinous killing of a black man in an American city by a rogue police officer has provided a pretext for a revolutionary fervor to sweep across the Anglo-American nations demanding the overthrow of Western civilization as we have known it. In response, progressive social democrat politicians, intellectuals, churchmen and media personalities, anxious to virtue signal, have been taking a knee with protesters or verbally prostrating themselves before the outraged agitators, confessing their guilt and white privilege and pleading for ideological absolution so that they too can be on the side of the angels. Various church leaders and Christian organizations have published similar confessions and issued calls for social justice in the form of various reparations for blacks and other ethnic minorities. Nearly 200 years since the abolition of slavery in the British Empire, and over 150 years since Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. It is supremely ironic that the primary agitators, a movement called Black Lives Matter, along with elements from Antifa, deploying the abstract concept of white privilege to call for a new sexually libertarian collectivist society with a self-conscious orientation to turn tables and oppress the oppressor should place themselves under ideological servitude to white european intellectuals and philosophers who have demanded liberation from the creation order for the past 200 years the blm website utilizes all the same rhetoric as radical feminists queer theorists cultural marxists and anarchists Which are almost entirely the rarefied thought products of Rousseau's European intellectual heirs. Ideas which have gradually colonized minds in the global south over the past 60 years. There's no originality, no creativity, no utilization of historic biblical tools for reconciliation and renewal. Just the same tired list of destructive or redistributive demands that Western society has been hearing from humanists, collectivists, and totalitarians since the French Revolution. In terms of this Christian analysis of the cultural situation that takes seriously a biblical worldview, it is important to look at the presuppositions underlying the emotive rhetoric. Racism is not a biblical concept or idea, though the Bible is acutely aware of human sin manifest in prejudice, hatred, revenge, and resentment. Racism is yet another ism which takes a misunderstanding of the nature of the human person and proceeds to exaggerate ethnic identity into the ideological and interpretative key to life, history, and culture. In some cases, it actually becomes a form of idolatry. The Nazi concept of blood and soil, for example, with its ideal purebred Germanic Superman. The Shinto-based Japanese cultic belief in their racial supremacy as descendants of the gods, which blended with Darwinism to view Europeans with longer arms and hairy chests as closer to the apes. The Black Power movement, the nation of islam and many others these are all examples of racial idolatry yet from the scriptural standpoint there are no distinct races there is only the human race one human family traced back to our common first parents adam and eve and then noah and his family after the great deluge every person on the face of the earth today is a descendant of the brothers Ham, Shem, and Japheth. The table of nations in Genesis 10 and the monumental historical moment at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, give us a broad overview of the spreading out and distribution of the human family and the emergence of various peoples and tribes from ancient times. This diaspora, led to the development of distinct cultures with different inherited genetic characteristics as the peoples moved out across the world and became more geographically isolated. Now, in Acts chapter 17, within a cosmopolitan Roman empire, the apostle Paul points out that this was God's doing and that we are all of one man or one blood. Paul elsewhere reminds us that all ethnicity-based divisions are overcome by the gospel, a living reality that creates one new person in Christ, since we are all Abraham's seed and heirs by faith. In Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost actually reverses the divisions of Babel, for with the giving of the Holy Spirit, people from all over the known world hear the gospel in their own language by the miracle of tongues. The renewed covenant people, a multi-ethnic Christian church, is therefore a new humanity in Jesus Christ and is truly a new race born anew in the last Adam, irrespective of national or ethnic background. God's people are called from every tribe, tongue, people and nation, having been made one kingdom of priests unto God. As such, scripture upholding Christians have a unique contribution to make in addressing and resisting the tearing apart of society along the lines of skin color through race baiting and identity politics, or revolutionary action rooted in resentment, hatred, and vengeance. Only. The gospel of the kingdom that announces jubilee in Jesus Christ is able to bring reconciliation where oppression, hatred or resentment, conflict and acts of vengeance between peoples once reigned. Every revolutionary movement setting out to right wrongs whilst not grounded in scriptural truth and the reconciling work and lordship of Jesus Christ constitutes a counterfeit jubilee and a political gospel of false guilt, phony confessions, fictitious atonement, larcenous restitution, and artificial forgiveness. We'll go deeper into this theme and the biblical response in part two.